Hello and welcome to another edition of Outside is Overrated. This is episode 15. I am your host, Tom Awesome. Today, we are going to be talking about cooperative gaming. We're going to have two big segments, one covering board games, one covering video games. As always, we would love to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. So as we get ready to kick off episode 15, I am excited to welcome back my close friend, Hobby Box Burns. Welcome back to the show, Joey. Hey, yo. So what have you been up to since the last time we recorded an episode, like three months ago, four months ago? It was something like that. I was thinking about that one. At first, I was just thinking about what I've been doing since in the last month, but it's been a while. Um, my roommates got married to each other. Um, I And we love everybody. Yeah, you know, that's how that goes. Played a lot of different games. Everything from Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy fourteen, which are two very different games. Apparently, you only play multiples of seven. Apparently. Well, maybe we'll get into that. Is, is Fire Emblem the 21st Fire Emblem? It sure feels like it. Well, it's the 21st since the DS came out. So then I've been playing that, and then... Um, I've been playing PC Building Simulator. And what exactly is <laughs> PC Building Simulator? Like, are you pretending to build PCs or... Uh... So, basically, it has a, it's a very in-depth story. Um, you are in a... You're making very serious eyes at me right now. <laughs> you're, in a, you're in an office and you're staring at a computer. And your uncle has left you his PC uh, repair business. And you have to try to make it successful. And there's, like, no money in the bank account. And so basically you fix people's computers until you learn how to make new computers and then you just make PCs. And so like you'll carry the box out from the one area, put it down, you have the case, you open it up, you have to click on each screw to open it up. And then you try to find out what's wrong. Sometimes it'll tell you what needs to be fixed or what needs to be upgraded. Other times you have to diagnose it to try to see I don't know why I keep playing this stupid game, but the last few days I've just been playing that. It's so dumb. Better or worse experience than playing The Quiet Man? Oh, I mean, hands down, everything's always better than The Quiet Man. That could be like a new challenge. I challenge anybody to try to tell me any sort of a game that they think is worse than The Quiet Man, and I will prove them wrong. If you think of it, send an email to <laughs> overratedpod at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at Tom underscore underscore awesome. So before we get into the main bulk of the show, we actually got together with a couple of friends last weekend. We had a big-ass board gaming day. Mm -hmm. We started at 9.15 a.m. because you guys were late, and we <laughs> went until uh, midnight. Casey left, I think, at 12.15 is the last one out the door. That was right around there, yeah. Let's give a quick rundown of what we played, and why don't you share a couple of your impressions on each, Joey? Okay. So in chronological order, we started with One Deck Dungeon. Yeah, I like that game a lot. Um, the card games always just baffle me at how good they are at making different parts of the cards like reference different things. And so, for instance... Uh, once you get a spell, it goes underneath it, so the bottom of that shows somewhere. And then when you equip something else, it's like the side. I don't know. It's just really fascinating how 
they use every inch of the card for that. And it's so it's hard to explain on an audio podcast, right. but basically every edge of the card is a different upgrade. So when you defeat a monster, defeat a challenge, you get to claim that and you get to use one of those four sides to build your character. Wait, you mean they couldn't see my perfect gestures showing like how the cards lay out on there? Your hand gestures mean that we should be doing a video podcast, but technologically we're not just there. I mean, I just figured out how my GD microphones work like last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded wonderful. Hey, that's good. The next thing we played is one of my favorites, Quarriers. Yeah, I really enjoy that game. It's uh, like the fact that you're collecting the different types of die and how you have to do that and the strategy behind it and just the random nature of all the different monsters. Uh, I think it's really it's really fun and, and it's always fun to roll dice. And so, you dice know, you, games are fun. And this is a dice builder game. So you're constantly improving your pool. Basically, each turn you roll six dice, you get some money, you get to buy one other die, either a spell or a monster, and you can roll some monsters and then you summon them. And if they survive all the through every other player's turn back to you, you score some victory points. It's too bad that uh, I sucked at it both times we played it <laughs> yeah jake dominated us apparently jake just steamrolled us the first game and then the second game you know we managed to team up and keep him from winning for a good half an hour right before we succumbed yeah we we, we gave it our best shot the old college try as they call it <laughs> the next game we played is quickly becoming one of my favorites scythe spelled s-c-y-t-h-e i still so badly want to call it scythe yep scythe scythe is amazing it's Kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of different games. It's an engine builder, so you're trying to build up your economic engine, as well as trying to control different parts of the board in order to get different resources and score uh, objective points at the end. But basically, you you play one of five races, and each one has its own unique flavor and skills, and it's set in like a World War One kind of alternate universe in which people have mechs and try to farm and do all sorts of different things. And there's, it seems like it has just the right amount of combat and strategy as well as just kind of having to have certain things go your way. But if you still have a really good strategy, you can do good things in the end. And then kind of that rapid rush to the finish where like, I think two or uh, probably three or four turns before the end of the game, it seemed like nobody had any of the the star victory points. And then three, four turns later, you got all the way to the last star and then ended up winning. And being my second turn playing, like I knew that things were going well for me. And I knew that I was close to winning, but I wasn't familiar enough with the different win conditions, how you tally up the money for the different possessions at the end, that I lost at least one or two turns just trying to maximize my end game potential. And it worked out. I won. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of combat in the game, but it, what I like about it is it really rewards you for finding the efficiencies with your race. Like some things cost less resources, some things cost more resources. And what I did was I just found what was the cheapest. I got those resources pumping so I could upgrade something every turn. And then uh, I saw a big opportunity to steal resources from someone who was just hoarding them but not building anything. Mm-hmm. Totally crippled them, but it literally was all the resources I need to carry me to the end game. So I spent two turns on combat just stealing his stuff, which 
you know, hobbled him, but he left them exposed and I had an opportunity. Yeah. And I finished second. I lost by what? Seven points. I think it was. Yeah, it was close. It's something like that. And, uh, it, I, the biggest, I think the biggest problem that I had is I wasn't able to optimize the two actions I did each turn. There were times where I would do the top action because I needed to do that, but I wouldn't be able to build the thing on the bottom. If I could have optimized that a lot better, I would have probably had more stars on the top and then would have been able to control heading to the end instead of trying to make sure I was prepared for when the game ended to maximize that. So, mm-hmm. But no, it's a fun game. I, every game I've played, I mean, it's still the same game that you're playing each time but it 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 varies in sort of which faction is doing what and and there was a lot more i think i did a lot more combat this time than i ever did before not that i did very aggressive you moved across the board yeah i thought oh crap am i not controlling enough territory to win this game (laughs) and it's really just about like looking at your faction specific abilities and then whatever else you kind of have at your disposal and trying to maximize that it's a lot of fun i enjoyed a lot i'd highly recommend it to anybody one of my new favorites. From there, we moved on to a classic for my group, Memoir 44. You are newish to the game, and uh, we had somebody who had never played before, right? Yeah, uh, Jarrah hadn't played before. That's right, and we stuck you two guys on a team. <laughs> and I mean, Memoir is what it is. It's a war game. You roll lots of dice. You fight lots of dudes. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Um, my side won. Yes. That's right. We took a very weaselly win sprinting <laughs> to an objective medal that was unguarded for the last medal, which doesn't make me feel particularly good, but a win's a win. No, that's fine. And actually, this is the most fun I've had playing Memoir 44, and this is probably the third or fourth time I've played it. Oh, interesting. What yeah. set it apart for you? Were you on a team where you weren't being told what to do every turn? Um, I, I think I finally sort of understand some of the strategy of the game a little bit more before. I think before, well, the last game I played, I came in halfway through, and so it was already kind of like yeah. going towards the end. Oh, and, and then, the first time you played were those giant epic D-Day was, maps? Yeah, it was the D-Day maps that were like all the way across your living room in, in your last apartment. And it's it was very cool, but man, not super well designed because there was a lot of downtime yeah and it was just hard to it was hard to stay focused i mean we were playing towerfall ascension in between and i was more engaged in that than i was for the random turns i'd have to go roll dice and move you know a tank or or a dude across a table you know (laughs) i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name any names but probably our two slowest memoir players also weren't able to make it this game so things stayed a little bit snappier now that could be it too but it was a lot of fun it was a huge tank battle lots of fun we were able to take out your tiger tanks so so suck on that (laughs) I sucked on it hard. That was a very difficult pill to swallow. But we still lost. Yes, you did. From there, we went on to a game that I just purchased a couple weeks ago, and I've now played twice, the Firefly Adventure Game. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, They do a really good job of using in sort of a, it's not really a dungeon crawler, but it's a scenario-based game where you have an objective that you have to capture within a map. Uh, and it's it's rooms that you have to get into, and then you have AI-controlled guards that are moving around. At least in this instance, I'm sure there's some variance in some of the other objective or some of the other uh, scenarios. Yeah, jobs they call them in the game. And yeah, that I've played two now. The first one had cowboys posted at five different doors, so the shooters were out from the beginning, and you could try to get information from them, or you could go start fighting them and then the uh, melee thugs popped up at the end game once you found the hostage in this one it was all the melee thugs on patrol and then the cowboys came up after we tripped an alarm Mm -hmm. and we'll dive into firefly more in our board gaming section so moving on we the last game we played was jaws (laughs) 
Jaws was a lot of fun. I actually, so I'd heard a lot about it. I know uh, Charch on Video Games Weekly had talked about it on their board game semi-annually or whatever they call it. And I think that's where our whole group became familiar with it. Yep. And I'd actually seen it in Target prior to that. It's a really interesting game. It has two phases. The first phase is hidden movement with the shark. And then you're playing either Brody, Hooper, or Quint and trying to determine where the shark is, save as many swimmers as possible, and trying to hit the shark with barrels to send it to the end game before it gets too strong, of which the shark got very strong. The shark maxed out the swimmers that it ate. It has to eat like 11 to reach max power, and it got five in one turn. Yeah, that was that was maybe my bad, uh, leaving all those swimmers at that place, and then more came up there. Um, I think it was just bad luck with how the swivers were randomly positioned on the board. And then he happened to be there and just use a special ability to eat all of them in one go. Yeah. I enjoyed playing it with you guys, but I'm not sure it's a fun game. Really? Like, it was... There were elements that I liked. Like, trying to hunt down the shark was fun, but if that felt like a fool's errand. If, like... It feels like it'll be very, very difficult to ever catch the shark unless it's a complete idiot playing it. <laughs> so, like, it's fun to use the special abilities, but, like, one of my turns was just spent going to pick up some barrels. <laughs> you know, it it was funnish, but I don't know. I'll give it a couple more playthroughs before I have a final determination. We wound up winning that game as well. On the second phase of the game, you're, yeah. what's the boat, the Orca? Yeah, yep. For the record, I have never seen Jaws, so thematically <laughs> you'll have to let us know if this game was on point, but uh, the second half, you're in this little boat trying to club the shark with a baseball bat, or in your case, a hammer. Yes, uh, Hooper with the hammer um, it turns out it is in the, the ocean. greatest nemesis. <laughs> it apparently is. I uh, it, Well, because the thing is, is he can't evade the hammer strike, so the hammer, whatever damage you roll with it, you automatically hit it, and so I was able to just sort of consistently do damage after what was it probably seven tenths of our ship was destroyed <laughs> yeah shark got a big early advantage and like the shark was super powerful but his special abilities in the end game didn't seem that overpowering like they allowed him to destroy the boat a little bit quicker but it didn't seem particularly game breaking it seemed it did seem like it was a little bit difficult to try to actually kill the characters um, and maybe that's staying true to the movie to some extent. Maybe that's almost a hindrance to it. Um, it was <laughs> still a lot of fun when one of the uh, hidden. So how the second phase works is the shark says what they're going to do. And then the other three players get to talk around the table to determine how they're going to strategize it. Um, and unfortunately, Casey, who was playing the shark, accidentally flipped his thing. And I mean, this <laughs> is one consonant with Tom. If you give me an edge in a game, I'm playing to win. Like, I don't dick around with any game. If you give me an edge, I'm going to take it. <laughs> so Tom happened to see it. Um, I did not, but it didn't change what I was going to do because I was kind of stuck in a corner and had to do the, like, I only had one action to really do. And so, but yeah, we definitely put a lot of hurt on the shark in that one turn. Uh, and that swung the game, but then we kept going and added, Dumb shark gets bopped on the nose. Yeah, Isn't that how the movie goes? Th that is how the movie goes. Um, and so, but then we added more health to the shark at the end to keep playing it out. And it didn't seem to matter because we still won anyway. So maybe Casey's just a terrible shark. <laughs> maybe in that first phase, the second phase was maybe a little rough. Before we move on to our main segment of the show, I'm going to dig through my phone. We actually had somebody right into the show. <gasps> yeah. Whoa. Now, you know, they couldn't be bothered to take the effort to, you know, write an email to overratedpod at gmail.com. <laughs> 
But our dear friend Casey the Cairo writes in, listening to the podcast, he's referring to the Spider-Man podcast, Mm. episode 14, listening to the podcast, you forgot Electro from Amazing Spider-Man 2 as a villain, which he was on the list, he was the, I thought he was the worst villain, so... If I didn't mention him, I certainly meant to. Uh, he goes on to say, also, technically, Kingpin is in Spider-Verse. Rhino also makes a small appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 2. You can consider this writing into the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. <laughs> well, he's trying to keep you honest. If I missed Electro, not that big a miss. He sucked. Yeah. Uh, Kingpin being in Spider-Verse, we were largely talking about the live-action ones. I mentioned Spider-Verse when I ranked the top five Spider-Man movies of all time, but we didn't really include it for the purpose of our conversation. Um, and then Rhino making an appearance, like, did he do anything? Hmm. Does he ever do anything, to be honest? In the Rhino's- video game, he you know ran into some shit. So here, here's a question I have for you on that same line. Where in that hierarchy of Spider-Man movies... Where would you put the game in there? Oh, oh, that is a good one. All right. What did I say was number one? Number one, one was, was Far From Home. Yep. And then two was Spider-Verse, I believe. Either tied with Spider-Verse or right below Spider-Verse. Okay. I mean, I really, really loved both of them. Yeah, it's a great game. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And Sony bought Insomniac Studios, so they're going to be a PlayStation-specific studio from here on out. So that's interesting. I'm sure they're working on Spider-Man 2 right now. It's amazing after Sunset Overdrive flopped so big as an Xbox One exclusive that <laughs> right. now they're pumping out Spider-Man for PlayStation. Also, one more note on people writing in. Somebody actually wrote a comment on my Spider-Man review on the Ooh. Outside is Overrated, which was, you know, nice and kind of surprising. <laughs> they wrote, this movie is crap. <laughs> I've been a fan of Spider-Man since I was a child. Like I didn't see a way to respond to the post, but if you also listen to the show... Thank you for sharing your opinion. <laughs> I disagree. I liked it very much, but you know, we're all entitled to our opinions. That's true. Is it somebody that you knew or is it like a complete random stranger on the internet? Complete random stranger on the internet. That's kind of like when my roommate Lance and I had a mattress selling business on the internet. The only time we sold something was two mattress covers to someone in Atlanta, Georgia. No idea how they found us, but we were so happy for that dude. I have no idea if you're being serious. I'm or being not. 100% serious. <laughs> you you can even ask Lance. Mattress. We'll dive into that someday, (laughs) Joey Burns. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on social media. You know, every time we release a podcast, we see this huge spike in followers. I mean, I'm over 100. I've been there for, you know, years, but whatever. (laughs) You can write to the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That is overratedpod at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Tom underscore underscore awesome. You can follow Joey at hobbyboxburns. Uh, typo in my show notes, but <laughs> nice job. Not tweeting since February. See, now by the time this goes up, I am going to tweet, and I'm going to prove you wrong. Well, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you, you showed your hand. You can also follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash outside is overrated or on the gram at outside underscore overrated pod. I'm also on Instagram, but I have never posted anything on Instagram, so... We are not really creatures of the social generation. We're, we just miss, we're like that exennial group. We just miss the whole millennial, like, I need to have everything on everywhere. I mean, for me, Facebook came out at the towards the end of college, and it was just a tool to keep a tab on girls that I was interested in. <laughs> see, and I... And now it's like, well, what's the point? Like, I'm set, not really interested. Yeah, see, I don't know. I always 
Facebook has always been that tool to stay connected to people that I kind of know. <laughs> right? And I have no interest in staying connected with people. Like, I have my core group of friends for more, and the rest of the town is just kind of gone. And it's also really good at trying to find, like, to, to like, sort of not to lurk on people or sort of see, like, okay, who's this? And then you randomly see this person that you meet. Oh, they know this person. That's weird and random. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Uh-huh. You sound like a single guy on the Facebook. <laughs> well, now I use it basically just to follow and be in groups for video games and oh. tabletop games. So that's awesome. a lot of fun. We should talk about that, and I should follow them all and target those people with ads for OIO. Ooh, Ooh devious. <laughs> Anyways, coming to our main topics for today, this is an awesome time to be a fan of board games. There are a million different experiences out there, and the price of entry is relatively low, as opposed to, say, video games, where you have to buy a $400 console and then a $60 game. Mm-hmm. You can buy most board games for $60 to $100. For now. For now. That sounded ominous. Well, just, I don't know anything to the contrary. No, look, Go with, buy all the games now before the apocalypse Very comes. quick sort of aside, there's a possibility that tariffs will make board games much more expensive. Oh, Tariffs with China because most of the board games are made in China. Oh, that sucks. Let's uh, start <laughs> writing to our congressman. I believe that there's a board game for everybody. Today, we are going to talk about some of our favorite cooperative titles. Joey, where do you fall on cooperative versus competitive board gaming? So I'm curious, where do you think I fall? Would I prefer to play a cooperative game or a competitive game? Just knowing your personality, I would say, and I'd lean hard towards the cooperative side. And you are 100% correct. Um, I think the best illustration of that is when we played Cosmic Encounters and I had it set up, and I knew what we all had to do for one turn so that three of the four of us all won together, and nobody else took it. I was like, this would have been perfect. We all win except for that person who sucked. I can't remember who it was. But it was probably me. No, it wasn't you. You were part of it that could have like had the team victory, and you were like, hell no. Not a big fan of team victories. Now, <laughs> I skew the other way. I tend to be very competitive in everything that I do, but I truly enjoy cooperative board games as well. A, Phoenix is much more a fan of cooperative experiences. She doesn't like things where we compete together, and I Mm -hmm. love sharing these experiences with her, but it's also fun for me to share the experience with my friends and not always have to be the dick. Well, and I think the thing that's really interesting about cooperative games is they all tend to focus a lot more on story then. Whereas That's true, and I am very story-driven in my games. Yeah, whereas competitive games, you're always fighting against each other, and that's enough story, really. But cooperative games tend to have this narrative that's arching around them, and you're working on filling in those gaps. And you know, even with stuff like Gloomhaven, which we're going to talk about in a second, sure, you have interesting stories that come out of what you're doing, and that all plays into that narrative of what your party is and stuff like that. And that, I think, for me anyway, is similar to like D&D, that shared storytelling is much more fulfilling than saying, I won this game, you know, in this given sense. Ideally, I'd like to do both. Well, see, and that's actually... Something we haven't really talked about is I have a couple of board game ideas that I'm sort of tweaking around with and trying to develop into prototypes. Are you going to be as coy as Scott was when talking about video games ideas on this show? Um, I don't want to talk about them until I have something actually put together, but they both really focus on this whole overall cooperative in that if the group doesn't do well enough together, they will lose as a whole, but... 
somebody ends up being the person that contributes the most and the winner out of the group, but then everybody makes it through. So that's something that I want to try to like mess around with a little bit because I think that's really interesting and fun. And then sure, there's going to be backstabbing at certain points and somebody might be holding the knife (laughs) and somebody might up and end up a little frustrated. But if you still get through the main objective, sure, you guys accomplish that. But then who was the best at getting everything accomplished? And so those are some ideas that I want to mess around with a little bit. And a couple ideas I have, we'll see what I can put together, though, because it's daunting. (laughs) It's a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, I talked about it with Scott on the video game show. We all have great ideas for games, but actually, to make something tangible, that takes a specialized skill set and a lot of dedication. That That is true, and unlike Liam Neeson, I don't know if I have a special set of skills. I fucking hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will find you, and I will kill you. There's actually... Yeah, that moment is okay. The rest <laughs> of the movie is just direct and... It's funny. I heard a comedian make a joke about all of you taking movies. At some point, you're just a bad parent. Um, I saw Seth MacFarlane, Family Guy fame. Um, Orville fame. Yeah, he did did that speech as Kermit the Frog. It's pretty funny. I've seen that too. (laughs) Anyways, let's come back to Gloomhaven. Yes. We've talked about this game a lot on the show, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But for any listeners that may be new, can you explain this behemoth of a game? Yeah, so... Basically, the, the simplest way I can think to take it is think of a D&D campaign where you're going on all of these different scenarios and you're dungeon crawling through all these different areas. But now, instead of using dice, you're using cards to play the game. Um, and it's a cooperative game where you're, you're a party of adventurers that are trying to get through these different scenarios, unlocking pieces of an overarching story about the world and Gloomhaven and all of like the nefarious elements that are trying to take over the world or trying to destroy the town of Gloomhaven. And as you're going through that, you're gaining new skills, you're gaining new characters, saying goodbye to characters. And it's just a really interesting, fascinating game. The gameplay, you're on dungeon tiles, and you move around with movement that you have on your cards, and then you do abilities that you have on the cards. And it's that balance between trying to anticipate what you think the monsters are going to do, not only this turn, but the following turns. Um, And one of the really interesting aspects that it talks about in the book which I think is what makes the cooperation in this game really interesting is that it talks about how you shouldn't table talk. You can coordinate to the point of saying, I'm going to try to go early and I'm going to try to attack the elite, but you're not supposed to say, I'm going to go at initiative 17 and then I'm going to move to this specific hex and I'm going to be attacking for four. And I think I'm going to have this status effect and I'm going to put these elements out. Quick aside, my group is terrible about that, and I get really annoyed about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to buy into things. Like, when we play Revolution, you don't call it the fist or the envelope. You call it power. You call it influence. Or you call it by, like, what it is. You don't – drives me crazy when people don't buy into, like, we have this shared experience here, but you're ruining my immersion mm-hmm. by saying numbers. <laughs> and so it's really interesting, and – Sometimes that breaks down every now and again, but for the most part, you you get used to being in that more guarded discussion, Uh, and and it makes it more fun when you don't know exactly how things are going to play out. And there's actually items you can get later in the game that can help massage, sort of, because if you want people to act at a very specific order, so it's like, I really need to make sure I go after my friend John um, so that I can accomplish this. There's some 
items you can get that can tweak with your initiative order to try to put you in places um, as you advance through the game. Um, but even with that, it's still trying to decide, is it really worth it for me to invest my gold in that? Or is it worth it to buy other items? Or is it worth it to get enchantments instead that are going to help make these cards better for this character class, not only while I'm playing it, but while future people might play the characters of those class. Um, so it's just really interesting. Uh, you name your characters and it just becomes this whole stupid thing of just the name of a character. So I had a character that was named Freya Fingersplitter. Um, and that said a lot about her class and her character and what she was. And it played into what her objective was too, uh, because her sort of goal to get to retirement was to kill 20 different types of monsters. And so she was all about just bashing heads and trying to kill as many different things as possible. And so it's just fun how all of that works together. And it does become this whole cooperative experience. And with a cooperative game, what means it's a good cooperative game is when like you get to those tense moments and you're all just sort of pulling out all the stops. And once you like accomplish that goal and everybody's like screaming and happiness, like nothing tops that, whether it's a, whether it's a video game or a board game, like that means that it's a really good co-op experience and Gloomhaven, I think generates that in spades. We agree that this is an amazing game. It's not for everyone though. So thinking about who Gloomhaven would be appropriate for, Definitely people who like hardcore fantasy. Like It is a very fantasy-driven setting. And people who are ready for a commitment. How many sessions are you up to? Who I haven't counted it in a while, but we have to be nearing... We have to be nearing 60, I would say. 60 sessions at two to three hours a pop. Yep, and, and so... And, and we've definitely played the game more than any of the other groups of people. I know three other different groups that have the game, including yours. Um, and we've by Not far played more than a lot, all those groups combined. But it's tough because it, it's so hard, as you find with D&D groups too, it's so hard to find time to all get together. And we've just been lucky that we've been able to make it almost regularly a weekly occurrence because we're all so interested in seeing where it's going. And it's just such a fun game to play. And it has just the right level of strategy because one of the guys that plays with us, John, he doesn't really even like board games usually. He's much more of into D&D and stuff like that, even though he hasn't had as many experiences to play it. Uh, but he gets into this game because it's just the right amount of strategy and it's the right amount of engagement constantly through it. It's not like we were talking about like with Memoir, that D&D campaign where you would do your turn and then be waiting 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Some of those fantasy flight games are a lot like that too. You do your thing and then you wait for it to go all the way around the table and then it finally gets back to you. So That's like the first time we played Scythe too. That got a little brutal. It did get a little brutal. It was late at night and you guys have been playing games for a long time at that point. So completely justifiable. Jumping from the most hardcore game that we could imagine for cooperative experiences, I want to talk about a game called Forbidden Desert. Are you familiar with this I one? have seen the name, but I do not know anything about it. We have it. I've played it a few different times. Forbidden Desert is an escape game where you have to work with the other players to clear sand, find parts for your helicopter, and escape the desert. I think like the backstory is you found a relic or something and your helicopter crashes and you have to find it before the desert comes in and takes all your... Or kills you interesting each character has a role with a unique special ability and it's just it's kind of a light fun game what i like about it is it's an easy game to pick up people can talk about the best ways to allocate actions 
and that makes it very easy to introduce people who are less familiar with board games. So mm-hmm. it's a nice point of entry. Like, yes, you can all work together on a strategy. Maybe someone more experienced or me just bosses everyone around. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of talking about what to do next. Another thing I like about it is there's a sense of urgency as the sand piles up and the sun beats down. Like, and sand will randomly come out on the board in different spots, and it'll block your path for different ways. So, and you can't search where the sand is too high. So, you're constantly trying to clear sand. And if you're out in the sun when a certain thing happens, like you lose health, and if somebody dies, everybody loses. Mm-hmm. So, it's just there's a real sense of urgency to it that I don't get from a lot of other board games. Also, it's super easy to set up compared to games <laughs> like Memoir 44, where you find yourself watching someone set up the map, set up hundreds of dudes, set uh-huh. up all the terrain and stuff. Like With a game like Forbidden Desert, you get a lot more time to play rather than spending time setting up. And, you know, that can be a real benefit. So so what does it look like on the table? Is it like card-based or is it? Is it is a tile-based game. Okay. So there's a five-by-five oh, five grid of tiles, I think. And then you just flip them over as you explore different areas? Yep. And I forget how the mechanic works for where you find the stuff, but like you'll find a clue that it's in this row, and then you'll find a clue that it's in this row, and then you have to go to where those rows intersect. Cool. This game, much more accessible. <laughs> who is this for? It's... This is a gateway for people who don't play a lot of board games. This could be a great... My show notes are just riddled with typos. (laughs) Holy shit. That's all right. That's all right. It's physically difficult for me to read this. Boy, I should really put some more effort into these. Like, I'm so desperate to get my thoughts out, and I usually do it late at night. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Anyways, Forbidden Desert, (laughs) I can see it being a great game for families with kids once the kids are old enough to not eat the tiles. That is is an important distinction. So my family's not quite there yet, but, you know, I could see this being one that we introduced Daisy to at a very young age. I think there are two types of cooperative games, and they play different roles. So you do have, like you are talking about, Gloomhaven. That's for like hardcore people to play a hardcore, difficult game together as a group. And I love those experiences. Yes. Like, that is awesome, but we don't always have time or ability mm-hmm. for that type of game. Sorry, continue your thought. Yeah, but these games, like games like Forbidden Desert, and I'm going to jump in the show notes for a moment, and Pandemic are like awesome because of the fact that you can bring people that don't regularly play board games into the fold because it's cooperative. So they don't feel like they have to be competitive the first game. And it usually has some form of a a theme or, or like the setting of it is something that everybody can get into. So like being on a, being in a deserted area and trying to survive. Like people have seen movies about that. People like get that. That's something that's accessible to lots of different types of people and, and pandemic, like trying to fight worldwide virus outbreaks. Like it's something that's easy for people to wrap their head around and, and does a really good job of being simple for people to play. Um, but also does a really good job of allowing people to just give it a chance. Cause I think a lot of people are worried about board games and feeling like they can't, they can't get into those um, because they are overwhelming. And if you tried to jump jump somebody into uh, Twilight Imperium for the first time, they play Imperial a board game, Assault or Imperial Assault. It, it can it can even if they really love Star Wars uh, or really love space, like it could still be like a dissuader for them to get into it. We're gonna take a real quick break as my dad just randomly showed up at my house. <laughs> So now I feel a tremendous amount of pressure to perform as my dad is now sitting at the table enjoying a beer while we talk about board games. I was going to say, that's quite the jump into a live studio audience, (laughs) you know, midway through an episode, but I think we'll be all right. Yeah, I pray to God he doesn't start booing as we talk about shit. (laughs) I I think we'll be okay, but we'll see what happens. Well, you just mentioned Pandemic. 
And I wonder, as I was putting this show together, is Pandemic the reason that board games are so big right now? The four players each take on a unique job role and work together to prevent disease from destroying humanity. The base game is a remarkable and inspired Pandemic Legacy. Side note, is that the reason Legacy games are so popular? And a series of spin-offs, including Pandemic Cthulhu and Rising Tide, where you work to control the water flowing into the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. You can do anything in board games. Yeah, you pretty much anything. So, is Pandemic the reason that board games are so big right now? Uh, yes, and uh, Pandemic Legacy is the reason why Legacy games are huge right now. It's, I think it it came around at the right time, and it it sort of hit the market and spread so quickly. I think that was what really pushed sort of board games to that next level of complexity from you know, Monopoly, Risk, Stratego, and things like that. It took them from being shitty to being good. Yeah. Well, and it just, it, it showed that you can do lots of different things with them. And, and at the same time, Fantasy Flight started to get popular and started to have games like Arkham Horror, which we'll talk about a little bit later too. And that really started to propel things forward. Now, the interesting thing about Pandemic, the, the games like Rising Tide that you mentioned, each one of those is based around the city that they're going to host, like the pandemic conference every year. I can't remember what they call oh, it. Oh, no shit. I didn't even realize there was a pandemic conference. Yeah, I, I think it's like a tournament where people play it and everything like that. But then like a year out, they find out where they're going to be hosting it and they make a game that's themed around where that is. Well, this year it's in Holland. And so that's where Rising Tide came from. I heard uh, Matt Leacock, who's the designer of it, and he works with a designer from that area to design a game that sort of fits in with all of that. I think they had a they had another one that's in was it Pandemic Fall of Rome or something like that? Not familiar. I think there was one that was in Italy or something like that as well. Um, so it's like each time they try to do something that ties into where that's being hosted, uh, which I just think is really interesting. It's a never-ending stream of pandemic games, which means Matt Leacock is sitting on a pile of money that is only going to grow and grow and grow. <laughs> that is true, but but like we were talking about, it it's the perfect game for people that don't really play board games that often because it has just enough complexity to make it interesting. Um, but it's not too complex to scare people away. This is actually a more recent purchase. I, I bought this within the last five months, and I've played it with two people, uh, a coworker, and then my mom, who just don't play board games that often or maybe interested, um, and have played other games in the past, but it was one of those things where it was simple enough to pick up. The first time I played, we lost, and we were like, okay, we got to do this, this, and this, and just set it back up, and let's play again. Um, and so then... We played that again. We won that next time. Um, and then when I played uh, with my mom, also we won. And so it's just, it's really interesting because it's the globe. It's the, it's the, the, you know, the whole, the whole world. And you know enough about that and what that means. And you know that viruses are bad. And so then it's just trying to like strategize with each other and work together. And I think that's what makes cooperation so much fun is that you together are trying to find the solution. Sure, there might be one person who's a little more knowledgeable about it and throwing more input in there, but there's still always that choice for you two to work it out and say, oh, that's a good idea, we should do that, and then I'll do this on my turn, and then hopefully this doesn't happen, which more often than not, the epidemic will happen, I've found, <laughs> and it screws you over, but I don't know, I just think that's a lot of fun. So, Dad, Joey's mom plays board games with him. Why don't you play board games with me anymore? You know, when you said pandemic that kind of arouses me because i used to be emergency management director for my county so uh interesting 
So my dad's all in on pandemic. Who else is this game for, Joey? I, I, I seriously think it's pretty much for anybody. I think younger kids would maybe be sort of scared away by it a little bit, and it's probably not going to be as interesting or as engaging for them. But anybody that has sort of just a grasp or an understanding about stuff, I think would get into it and would get into playing it. And, and like we said before, there's not that competitive aspect. So you're working together. It's not going to, somebody's not going to be turned off because this person just knows more about the game. So as long as the person that's helping to run the game isn't strong arming everybody to do everything and they're all working together, I think it works out well for everybody. I agree. Uh- a lot of love for Pandemic because it brought board games to the mainstream, and more people playing board games means more people making great experiences for us to play. And means more people listening to this podcast. Most definitely. <laughs> Drive that big dump truck of money up to my front door and just let the landslide in. You should tweet this to Matt Leacock and see if he'll, if he'll uh, send it out. Yes. I should have asked him to be a guest on the show so he could ignore me like our friends at Larian Studios, but we'll get there. <laughs> The next game I want to talk about, we mentioned in the open, but One Deck Dungeon. This is a fantasy dice building game. You explore a dungeon, fight monsters, gain items, skills, and experience, and prepare to take down a boss at the end of the dungeon. Both players, or all four players, pick unique fantasy characters, rogue, archer, mage, what have you, and each has a unique special ability. It sounds pretty generic, but it's played with dice, and it's really fun to watch your dice pool grow. What were your first thoughts on One Deck Dungeon? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a little bit to sort of pick up what the mechanics are and what was important to try to be building up or not building up. But once you get the gist of it, after you get through the first couple of cards um, and how you do the combat and how you do the interactions with uh, the traps and stuff like that, it's really quick and it's really interesting. And it's by far just a better version of like Munchkin. In every step of the way, except for it's cooperative instead of, you know, Munchkin, which is just everybody sitting there hitting each other with sticks like they're two-year-olds at a freaking, you know, graduation party. It's not everyone hitting each other with sticks. It's one guy racing up to level nine, everyone ganging up on him, and then the, the second player to get to level nine just swooping in for an undeserved victory. And it seems like that's how every game plays out. Yeah, it's infinitely frustrating almost every time I play it. I, I know we had one board game weekend where we went up to a cabin to play games and they just kept wanting to play munchkin over and over and over again i was just like after the second game i'm like i'm going to bed i just i just that game is just so ridiculous um and there's just so many other things out there that you can play right and there are some fun things like there's some fun art some funny stuff in it but it's just not that good of a game yeah i i agree a thousand percent with you Anyways, coming back to One Deck Dungeon, we had a little technical glitch, so if I repeat myself, you know, live with it. <laughs> you get what you pay for on OAO. But just some highlights from One Deck Dungeon. It's a quick pace. There's minimal setup time. It uses dice. I like dice. <laughs> it scratches the fantasy itch without diving deep into tactics and initiative. You have a series of target numbers on different colored dice. You roll your dice and see what you can cover, take the consequences, and move on. Yeah, and I'd be really interested in actually playing a full game of it. I know um, we just played the first level of the three levels that you can go through. I think it's three levels, right? That yep, you can go three through. levels. And we were racing to try to get it in before everyone else showed up for gaming day. Yeah, but it was, I don't know, super quick. We got through that first level in like the 15, 20 minutes it took for um, the other, for one of the other folks to get here and for us to get ready for the other game. So I don't, I think it worked out perfect. and. Don't envision it being anything longer than that. And it, I mean, that was my first time playing it. It went that fast. So 
I think it lists playtime up to 30 minutes, but really cool little game. I think it's on the cheaper end of the spectrum, too, so we may go buy another set just so that we can play four-player if we wanted to. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. From there, we're going to jump to the Firefly Adventure game. Do you want to give an overview of what this thing is? <laughs> yeah, so as we kind of talked about it before, is you're, you're on these different jobs. And so each job is like a scenario where you're jumping in and you're trying to accomplish certain goals. And you're each playing one of the characters from the TV series. So you're either Jane or you are Mal or Wash, who is the best, or Zoe or... Kaylee. Kaylee. Sorry, I got distracted and I was scratching my arm. And I realized you weren't speaking. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I just, you know, and, and the joke's not as good the second time through. No. But <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. It the was first hard time. to remember. And I really actually did blank on her name, but it, it was it's hard to remember her name because she really did nothing when we played. Yep. <laughs> that was I Tom's made, character. I made a poor choice. I uh, walked into a building and tried to unlock a door. Couldn't unlock the door. Tried to go out the backside. Basically, spent the whole game just wandering around looking at some stuff. Uh, I didn't literally did not contribute in any way. I think I unlocked one door that didn't have to be opened. Were you, were you, were you thinking you were playing River and not Kaylee? Because she has some of those times where she's just doing whatever in the show. So Yeah, but then I would have like melted everyone with my brain. <laughs> so it, it is a kind of complicated game, but I do think it's one of those games that if people were interested enough in the show... I think they could just get into playing that character and wanting to try to do well as that character. As we kind of discussed, I don't know if it's for everybody, but I think you could get a group together and say, we're going to play this for three hours. Uh, let's just try to make the most of it and have some fun, you know? Yeah, I you know I approach most games with a hardcore gamer mindset. We're going to mm -hmm. maximize everything. We're going to do it all. We're going to get all the stuff. We're going to get all the loot. I'm going to get most of the loot, and I'm going to be the hero. Uh, but you bring up an interesting point about it being such a great theme and allowing people to live in that world. So the great theme is one of the highlights of it. The action is pretty fun. We played a one-off adventure. They also have a mechanic where you can string together multiple adventures. You start with a little less money, but what you find in a mission allows you to buy more stuff to equip for the next mission. And it, I think it would be really neat to play several scenarios back-to-back -back and just see how the characters grow with better gear and equipment. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be interesting and see what sort of wrinkles the expansions add. Um, to that campaign. So if you get through the six jobs that come with the original, like what other things do the other campaigns add to? I'm a little skeptical about the expansions just because there's one that's Anara and what's she going to do? Just hang out on the ship and bang some dudes? Like, Yeah, but never you. I mean, never anybody that's consequential to the story. And just she's just a tease. Yeah, we talked about it a lot on the episode with Phoenix where we spoil the ends of everything. Quick side note. <laughs> Good Lord, it's distracting to try to replay a conversation. Like, we did this once, and it was pretty good, but the world will never know. Audacity just paused in the middle of our broadcast. You know, thank God I noticed it now and not like 37 minutes down the road. Yeah, the conversation was definitely better the first time, and every time I tried to steer it in the direction that it went before, it just did not work. Well, that's because I have no interest in repeating it. Like, we did pretty good the first time, and now it's like, you know, you're saying what you said before, and I'm like looking at a butterfly outside the window. <laughs> Hard for me to care the second time through. That's all right. It, it happens to the best of us and apparently also the worst of us because it <laughs> happened to us. So. <laughs> so this, I view this as a pretty hardcore game. Every character has like eight to ten actions that they can do on their turn. It can take a lot of planning, both for movement and actions. 
It's got a, the cool time-based system. Hopefully you mentioned that this time through. Yeah, I'm not sure, but if, if I didn't, we're going to say it again. <laughs> um, but it is interesting how the, the levels of the actions work and how you have to balance then whether you do a lot on one turn or if you want to make sure you're falling in line with the rest of the characters. And each of the characters is kind of better at a certain thing. So, for instance, um, in the game that we played, uh, Zoe, when she's in hardcore mode, she doesn't move very fast as far as how far she can move on the board, but she does it in less time. And so it was really interesting because it's like she's moving for but then she's moving a lot faster because it only took one time each time she moved two. Um, and then when Wash moves four, it's two time for each time he moves four. And so it's interesting because she gets to activate, which means, and it makes sense because she then gets to react more. So instead of having to commit all this time to movement, she can move, move, and oh, wait, now she can shoot because something showed up. Uh, whereas Wash is sort of committed to that movement and waiting for everybody else to do everything. And so I think that's kind of the interesting strategic aspect in this game, uh, which is why I'd like to try it again and play it a little bit more to sort of see what more you can get from it. I think one thing we did struggle with is we got a little bit in the deep think on, on one piece of it. And that added maybe a little bit more time to it. Basically like our goal was to run into this building, sneak past some guards, hack a computer and then get out. And that's a hard thing for five people to accomplish. Right. Really only you or I had to run into the building and get to the computer. Right. You know, I was off, hiding in a building <laughs> trying like, to unlock a door and deciding it was too hard yeah and then just backtracking the whole way but for our fighters it was they didn't have much to do with the active thing so they went around trying to pick a fight which i mean was funny like when jane kept sucking at trying to kill someone and mal like had committed all of his actions and just watched basically i think that was fun yeah, I mean, it's a neat game. I have a hard time slotting it in on how hardcore it is, but mm-hmm. it's definitely something that I look forward to playing again, not only with Phoenix, but also with our group of friends. Yeah, I agree. All right, quick aside. Favorite character in Firefly? I mean, Wash. A thousand percent is my favorite character. Um, he, he was fantastic in the show. Uh, I, I mean, I just like that actor, too. Um, Alan Tudyk. Um, or- the old turkey. <laughs> I swear to God, there's an R in there. <laughs> Every time we mention the turd dick, Joey loses it. <laughs> That's a throwback to quite a few episodes ago. Yeah, it was this year. Another quick side note. This is the 15th episode. It is number eight this year. So thank you to our sponsor, Premier Health. Yeah. I mean, hey, we'll throw that out there as much as as much as we can. PremierHealthMN.com. It is a hell of a motivator. Like, when I got paid to do something and committed to doing X number of episodes, you know, here we are. Yeah, it works. Yeah, streaming on your device. All right, enough with the asides. (laughs) We're going to move on to fresh conversation for us. Largely fresh. Make sure we're still recording. Let's try to keep our shit together here, birds. (laughs) We're doing all right. Next on the list, something you suggested, the Betrayal Games. Yeah, I think, um, so Betrayal... Now I'm going to get the name wrong. Betrayal on the House on Haunted Hill, I believe is the name. I always get the different words mixed up. I think you had an extra on in there, but that's close yeah. enough. Or maybe it's like at the on the, I don't know. Anyway, so that and then Betrayal at Baldur's Gate uh, are both really interesting games. And so they're dungeon crawlers in a different way. You're moving through a haunted house, a haunted house or the 
city of Baldur's Gate and you basically draw tiles to be what that next room is. And in each room, there's going to be one of three symbols that are going to cause an event to happen within the game. And so it, there's two halves to the game. The first half of the game, you're trying to sort of explore as much as you can, get items, see some weird stuff happen, uh, and just really try to make yourself stronger for then the end game, which is where betrayal comes in. That then means that once you have enough of the omens happen, which are the bad, scary things, uh, once enough of the omens happen, then eventually you kick off the second half of the game, which is the actual betrayal part, where more often than not, we've had it happen sometimes where it's not a person betraying the rest of the group, but then it pits the whole group versus one of the people who has sort of been possessed or gone evil or or whatever you had, whatever you know, the actual scenario says there's 50 different scenarios and then an expansion that adds 50 more that just weird stuff that you have to go through and do. And I think it's just super interesting in that the first half of the game and the game mechanics are always the same, but having that whole second half is like a, that M night Shyamalan twist um, is always different or always something new unless you draw the same one, but <laughs> it's usually something different or something new. And it seems to surprise me every time I play it, which is fun. I agree. And there can be some really wild stuff. Like one time I was the betrayer and I became the house and the house became a living entity trying to eat all of the other explorers. (laughs) Well, and then there was the one where we didn't have a betrayer where because we found a certain item, then what we had to do is we had to then go back through everything again and try to find that item again. And it ended up being a time loop where if we went so many turns, then we had to restart and we had fewer turns to try to find it. Now, that was kind of anticlimactic because on the second room we went into, we found the item. (laughs) But it was really interesting. And we were like shitting bricks because it's like you have only so much time. So it's like we have to move fast. We have to get to here, to here, to here, to here. And it's like going to the first door. Oh, there's the item. We win. (laughs) (laughs) Hooray. (laughs) So Betrayal at House on the Haunted Hill is the first game. And it's got some really neat moments, but it always... Sometimes I feel like it's flawed. Like sometimes the haunts aren't particularly well described and you get bogged down in the yep. rules and you kind of get taken out of it. I think Betrayal at Baldur's Gate is nearly flawless. Yeah. I think they worked out a lot of the kinks and I prefer the haunted house setting because that's a little more unique. But mm-hmm. I think that Baldur's Gate is one of the most exquisitely balanced games available. Yeah. And and um, jumping into like who this is for... So if you're a D&D fan, I would recommend Baldur's Gate. Probably a more casual person would be more interested in the Haunted House uh, version of the game. The one thing I would say, if, if somebody's a more casual gamer, the first half of the game can be fun. But if that more casual person is the betrayer at the end, they're going to be a co- completely overwhelmed. Because even for me, as a hardcore gamer... Um, and those really worked on well on the audio. My yeah, air quotes. Air quotes. <laughs> but as, a, as as someone who plays a lot of games, I'm even intimidated by being the haunter or the betrayer. Not me, because I'm really good at games, <laughs> and I take pleasure in crushing all the ants that are my friends. But no, I totally get it. If you, I would be reticent to play this with a casual person. Like I've explained with Phoenix and Phoenix likes board games, but she's just not interested. She's worried that she would be the betrayer and that she wouldn't have a grasp of the rules and that the experience would kind of fall apart for her. So it could be accessible, but I don't know. For me, I just, I want to play with people who are more, 
comfortable with the rules and could take on that betrayer role and provide an adequate challenge. Now, the most important thing that this game provides to people, though, is the experience of sifting through and finding one piece of cardboard in a freaking pile and mass of disorganized cardboard mess because there is no way to organize those things very well. And you have to find item pile number three or you have to find the freaking mushroom or whatever and you're just digging through chunks and digging through things to try to find it. The first thing I do in every game is assign someone that is not me to be the token bitch. You can guess who that usually is. You're so good at it, Joey. <laughs> I'm actually pretty... And I got to use those skills in memoir. I found those things that <laughs> Jake couldn't find like that this week. Yeah, weekend. that was awesome. <laughs> so the Betrayal game's very fun, but maybe leave it for a more hardcore crowd. The last game we want to talk about here, again, your suggestion. I don't know if it's more of a behemoth than Gloomhaven. It's a smaller box, but it feels like a bigger commitment for a single day. For a single day... Yes, and now I have to give I ha I have to give a little bit of a qualifier on this, or or a little bit of a, a little bit of. You love the most masochistic board gaming experiences available. Go. No, no. Um, I've only played so Arkham Horror and Eldritch Horror are the two games that I'm talking about, um, and. I haven't played the new edition of Arkham Horror, which I hear streamlines things a lot and is a lot faster to play, but. Second edition of Arkham Horror is this behemoth of a game where you're playing as a group of people that are trying to solve this madness in order to keep one of the great old demons from spawning and destroying the world. Is it officially a Cthulhu world or is it just Cthulhu inspired? That is a really good question. I think they have the Lovecraft license. I think they do too. So we're going to say it is a... Lovecraftian experience. Yeah, I, I I happen to think they do because I think they have a lot of the characters like the Nick Diamond and stuff like that. I think are from the novels. I could be wrong. I should read more H.P. Lovecraft. I read like one story in college. I've never read any of his stuff. Yeah, well, we're terrifically well informed. Go on. I mean, I was an English major too, so but I don't know. You can't read everything. Do you work right? in English now? I mean, English, motherfucker. Do you <laughs> speak it? I try to every day. <laughs> Like how I just sort of like sort of positioned around answering that question. Oh my god, you just broke me, dude. <laughs> so Arkham Horror and then Eldritch Horror, which is a much more streamlined version of Arkham Horror, is basically that. You're trying to stop this great demon from manifesting by killing all these sort of smaller spawns from showing up and then using the Elder Signs to lock those gates so that the demons stop coming forward from them. Uh, Arkham horror happens where you're in the town of Arkham and you're going between different areas. Eldritch horror is you're looking at the whole like region and the world and you're traveling around the world trying to sort of seal up these gates uh, and you're playing as these interesting characters so some of them some of you might be a kid you might be like a very noir detective you might be like a 20s like flapper girl like dancer debutante kind of thing and so that that adds a little bit of interesting thing what arkham horror and eldritch horror did especially when the first edition of arkham horror came out is they really pushed the envelope of cooperative gameplay along with then having a really in-depth story there weren't a lot of games when arkham horror came out 
other than like tabletop RPGs that really focused on like an actual storyline that's building as you're going through the game. The problem that Arkham Horror especially had was that it is a beast of a game. You have the one board that folds out and will take up your typical dining room table and you're just basically moving all the way around it constantly doing different things and a lot of the time the movement makes it feel like you're not necessarily accomplishing much because you have to do so many different things to get to the point where you can do something meaningful um and so I think that is a turnoff for some people I've heard that the third edition of Arkham Horror does a lot better job and Eldritch Horror, in its own right, does a lot better job of that, too. Um, so it's four... P- oh, go ahead. One thing I want to bring up quick, my favorite thing in all of the rules, I've played this game three times, and I have found it is a much better experience when you play with someone who knows the rules in Zen Out. Yes. But uh, my first time playing it, we were at my apartment. Were you a part of this game? I don't think so, no. So we were playing with my friend Pat... The rogue hippo himself <laughs> and uh, another friend took out a loan from the bank. So we're running around trying to stop this cosmic horror from enveloping all of humanity. And like we had to stop so Duhau could make his roll to see if he had to pay back his interest on his loan. He had to roll a D6 and he like rolled a one. He's like, sweet, I don't have to pay my interest. <laughs> and Pat just lost his mind thinking that he had to stop in the middle of trying to stop this epic horror. <laughs> to see whether or not we had to pay back our interest on our bank loan. It just, he well, just laid on the floor for a little while. <laughs> and it's been so long since I've played it. I know we played Eldritch Horror more recently. And we being your friends who you like more than me. And I wouldn't say I like them more than you. I just, you know, hang out with them more by choice. Um <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start adding Joey's top five friends into the podcast. <laughs> And I'll just sit there with my fingers crossed. Come on, number five. Come on, number five. <laughs> Honorable mention, Tom Sidlachik. Um he's Fuck just yeah, really he cool said guy. my name. Yes. <laughs> oh, actually, I forgot. No, I'm just kidding. Aww. But lots of interesting things will happen, and you'll get caught up on certain things. And then it's like, I spent my whole time in Canada trying to fight this beast. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know. Interesting stories that develop with those, I think, are really interesting. Now, this isn't for everybody. This maybe isn't for most people, but if you have a dedicated group of people that are really interested in it and are kind of into sort of that deeply, darkly horror type of game, I think it can be a lot of fun to spend an afternoon playing it. And people are super duper into the Cthulhu mythology. Yes, yes. That's, well, especially you look at like Dark Souls, Bloodthorn, or Bloodthorn, <laughs> Bloodborne. Um, and, and, and yeah, people, that is definitely something that's on a resurgence right now. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with it being popularized by the board game first. Arkham Horror was one of those really complicated board games that became popular first, like after Pandemic did. It was Arkham Horror kind of flowed in after that. I feel like Arkham Horror reached its peak beforehand, and it maybe brought hardcore games to a hardcore audience while our Pandemic came out later and expanded board games as a whole to a more broad and general audience. Well... For those of you that like correcting us, tell us which one's wrong by writing overratedpod at gmail.com. Oh, my God, you did it. Nice work. (laughs) 
So yeah, so this is for people who like tough as nails, uphill battles, approaching an epic scale, and then anyone enthused by the Lovecraftian world. So um, I've heard really good things about the third edition of Arkham Horror. It's just too expensive for me to want to buy right now. I own about a thousand board games, and I'm probably not going to buy it. Like if you <laughs> probably or one of my other friends buy it, I'm certainly interested in checking it out, but it's not going to be something I'm rushing to the store to get. We want to thank our sponsor, Premier Health, again. Premier Health has solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accidents and work injuries, and more. I suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. Well, board games are awesome. For our top five today, we are going to list Tom Awesome's top five team-based shooters. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Tom Awesome's Top 5 Team-Based Shooters. Now, I was a little loosey-goosey with the term team-based shooter. I'm sure if a million people followed us, they'd rip me to shreds. But for our 100-person audience, hopefully we're generic enough. Number 5, Left 4 Dead on Xbox 360. So this is one of those like gaming sins or whatever that I have. I have never played Left 4 Dead because I never owned an Xbox console. And at that point when it came out, I didn't really play games on PC. So I completely missed out on Left 4 Dead. I wish I would have played it, though. It was a really cool experience. I can't give you too much grief. I mean, I was newish to online gaming then. Duhau has never played games online. Like he's never paid for a live subscription or PlayStation Mm -hmm. Plus. Uh, but I would drag my 360 to his house, and we'd play Left 4 Dead for hours because it was a four-person t- uh, four team fighting hordes of zombies, and it was just—it was a really cool experience. And it was back before everyone had zombie fatigue and mm-hmm. all that. Just really awesome game. Miss you, Left 4 Dead. Didn't play as much Left 4 Dead too, but I hope that the franchise comes back sometime. Well, so they have the studio, which split off and did Evolve, which we're going to talk about sometime in the future. Turtle Rock Studios, they now are creating a game called Back for Blood, which is supposed to be a spiritual successor slash evolution of Left 4 Dead that I think is supposed to come out in 2020. I see what they did with the four. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Number four on my list. I can't wait to get into this with you. I see what you did with number four, and I hate it. Number four, Destiny 2. Boo. Boo. <laughs> you know, I can... I get it when people don't like certain games. Like, sometimes things don't resonate with you. And when you and I played the original Destiny, our expectations were maybe a little lofty, and the original Destiny didn't meet it. Destiny changed after we stopped playing, and Destiny 2 is a good game. The way I look at it is, I paid $60 for Destiny. I loved I loved the combat. Like, the shooting and stuff like that was just like, it was better than what Halo was, and it was like Bungie at its best. But... To have to play the same damn shit over and over and over again. And running down the same hallways. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and then... We both bounced off that game hard. How many people kept telling me, oh, it got so much better with it, with this first expansion. Oh, the second expansion, so good. Like, this is what Destiny needs to be. It's like, I didn't like the $60 purchase I made. Why would I spend another 30 and then another 30 to try to like a game that I disliked. Doesn't make sense to me. 
So I was I was burned fairly badly. I had two chances to buy Destiny or to get Destiny Two for free, and I didn't take them. I could have got it on PlayStation Plus. I didn't download it out of spite. I bought. Gosh, I don't even remember what freaking game it was. Random and randomly, Best Buy gave me Destiny Two for free, but. It wasn't available when I picked up my game. I would have had to have drive back there separately on the following Tuesday when it was going to be back in stock. They held it there for a week. I never went and got it because I did. And and part of it, I'm going to admit, I'm not too prideful to admit this. Part of it's because I'm afraid that if I played it, maybe I would like it and would have to eat crow on all this. So I'm going to stay strong and say no. Okay, now I understand. Like, I get your point on Destiny 1. Like, Mm -hmm. The game let us down. Don't want to pay for the expansions. Totally get that. But with Destiny 2, you know, crimes of the father, sins of the son. What's the saying? Yeah, sins of the the sequel are amplified twice fold is the saying, I think. Yeah, you nailed it. Anyways, (laughs) Destiny 2 is a good game. You're silly. Moving on. I am silly. Something we can both agree is a fantastic game, Ghost Recon Wildlands. Yes. Uh, Wildlands has been, I would say, probably in the top like three of most fun I've ever had playing games with people. And here's a question. Is it because Ghost Recon is fun, or is it just because we had such a fun crew and it had such a capacity for chaos that it was more a byproduct of the way we played it versus the game itself? So... It's a good game because it gave us that latitude to play that way. I I think one of the things that... Because Ghost Recon has kind of vacillated between trying to be sort of that military simulator shooter and then being a little bit more arcadey throughout its like time from when it first came out on the original Xbox and Lance and I played that like cooperatively nonstop. This was my first ghost recon experience. Yeah. To now where it's like the squad based thing. And even in the demos, when they showed it and they had like those like canned voices talking about, you got someone on your six and it's like nobody, when they fucking play a game, like <laughs> talks like that, they don't talk like that. Apparently video game marketers don't play video games. <laughs> Apparently not. Hire us instead. Um, But the, I think the thing about ghost recon is that it, it takes the story fairly seriously. Uh, it knows how ridiculous some of the characters are, but it tries to play that deadpan so that you can enjoy it however you want. And it leaves the game open so that you can have the fun you want to do, go completely crazy. You can throw mines on your own helicopter and let it blow them up. Oh, you can? I can. <laughs> I don't recall anyone else doing it. It wasn't mines. It was C4. So if the fuckers left me, I could just blow it up. But so I think them leaving it open to allow you to play the game that way or to play the game completely seriously and strategically. I think them leaving it open to that is what made it so successful. I mean, it was one of the top selling games of the year when it came out still has a pretty strong following. I am worried that breakpoint, the next game that comes out that's in like, that's this fall. I'm worried that it's going to take it too far to that more serious level and won't allow us to be serious when we want to be serious. But then, you know, just like run a motorcycle around like your party members and just dick with them enough so that they until they get frustrated and blow you up with C4, you know. I was a big fan of trying to blow you guys up while you're in menus. That was a real <laughs> hoot for me. 
That was one of the highlights of or all of gaming. You'd be piloting the helicopter, and we'd all be in a menu, and you'd just jump out of the helicopter. We come back out of the menu, the helicopter's crashed, and we're on fire. You're just sort of parachuting, parachuting down. I love this game. <laughs> so I love fun. this game so much. <laughs> it was the most Tom-friendly video game experience that I could possibly imagine. <laughs> Number two. Now, this is a game. It's one of the most recent games that cracked my top five all-time favorite games. Borderlands 2. We're playing it again right now. Uh, it's still awesome and fun, but it's maybe not the timeless classic that I remembered in my mind. Well... I- in in game in genres like first person shooters, it's it's it is tough for it to continue to evolve or or to stick with like that continued evolution in the in the genre. Uh, but it it still did so many different things. Like that was one of the first games that was like a first person shooter anyway, for sure. That like I was genuinely funny to play and interesting, and it had its art style and it played to that like thematically story-wise, like to a T all the way through. And and so, I don't know. It, and it's so much fun to play also as a group. And each of you has your abilities that you can do that are over the top and powerful. And But they are useful because they play well together too. And I think that's a lot of what's important in like a cooperative shooter is that everybody has their piece that they can play and bring something different to the table. And it's all about learning that, but also learning how that works best with one of the other classes and also works best with how that other person plays that class. I chose to be a healer when we're playing through, which sounded cool. Like I shoot you guys with a rocket and heal you, but it, <laughs> it turns out shooting my friends is not as much fun when it isn't actively hindering them. And it actually keeps me from shooting the bad guys sometimes, which is, you know, kind of bad. Like I like to be the guy with the rocket launcher blowing everything up and, you know, kind of having the bombastic action. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Sometimes if you're not playing the right character, it can it can downplay the experience a little bit. But I'm still loving it. Super excited for Borderlands 3. Number 1 on my list. Like as soon as I told Phoenix what I was going to do for the top 5, she's like, "I know what number 1 is going to be." <laughs> and she was right. It's Overwatch. My beloved, beloved Overwatch. Like I'm down a Monster Hunter rabbit hole which we are going to dive so deep into in a future episode. But like Overwatch <laughs> is Maybe my favorite game of this console generation. Like, I don't think it's necessarily the best game, but it is something that I enjoy so much playing the different characters. And uh, when I can get a group of my friends together, like it's it's my favorite thing to play. Um, Overwatch is really was really interesting to me because I played it when the beta came out, um, and that was when it was Gearbox's last game, Battleborn, when that was releasing and was just terrible. And part of what made that seem as terrible as it was was because Overwatch's beta came out like two weeks before that and was so much fun. Everybody was like, these heroes are so much better than the Battleborn heroes. This is like a garbage game. (laughs) And it died very quickly on the vine. It always was so expensive to me to buy until we played as a group. They did free play weekends, which really, I think, sold a lot of copies of that game. Yeah, because we played as a group that time then, because I'd picked it up a few times before that, and I was like, eh, I just don't like playing competitive games, and I'm not good enough at them, but playing that weekend with you and a couple of other people on the internet, like really just intrigued me and started to make me fall in love with some of the characters and how they play, and like, I should do this, I can do this, and it is one of those games, I think... Games are good when they make you feel like you can do no wrong. 
And there's times in Overwatch where you're just clicking and you're going through a game. Like I'll be going in as D.Va and it's like everything's just working right. I'll go through an entire game as D.Va and die once, which is ridiculous for me because in shooters, I usually die all the flipping time because I'm Mm -hmm. like a freaking kamikaze when I just run into things and firefights and just shoot things. Um, But it's just like everything's flowing and you play the game and you're just like, yes, you know, it just makes you feel so awesome. It's like, I can be good at games too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my journey was a little bit different. I was intrigued by the game at launch. Like I read all the, I devoured all the game informer coverage on it and they loved it. And uh, Phoenix gave it to me for our dating anniversary of the year it came out. So I had it almost right away. I think it came out late, late fall and I got it early December and I played it a couple of times and I played the tutorial area and I didn't really get into it. Yeah. It wasn't until I had a couple of friends get super deep into it and then there was a free weekend so like I got together with a group of friends who hadn't really played at all and that was fun and mm-hmm. then my friends who got super into it saw that I was online and they took me under their wings and oh my god it just opened up the whole game for me like learning there's a lot of nuance to it, like learning the maps, learning the choke points, learning the characters that counter other characters. Yep. And once I started to get a feel from some of those and started to get decent with a couple of the characters, like it just, oh my God, I love the game. I could play it almost endlessly. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And, and I think that's the part of it that kept me drawn in because... I mean, I've played the game a lot more than I've played it cooperatively with people. and so Me too, but I needed like that co-op to really yeah. get me invested. Now like I can hop on and I can play some of my own. But yeah. for the entry point, I really needed some sort of comfort level with other people who were equally shitty. Yeah, no, that's 100% the same with me. That That's what pulled me in. It's like, okay, that's how much fun this can be. And it gave me that like helpful nudge into this is how you play the game. This is how it works. So Overwatch is amazing. Honorable mention, now I don't play a lot of shooter games, so I didn't have a huge list to pick from here. The only thing I could think of as an honorable mention, going to take it to the Wayback Machine, Perfect Dark. So I was one that played um, Goldeneye a whole lot more than Perfect Dark. By the time Perfect Dark came out, I just kind of You said away. video games were for babies? <laughs> you didn't want to buy the expansion for your Nintendo 64? No, I already had that because I think... Did that come with like Excite Bike or something like that? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I remember I had something. to buy it for Perfect Dark and I was pretty salty about it. <laughs> it's like, oh, they designed this port where we could stick this stupid thing in. Like, why don't you just build it in the first place? Tom, that's so Nintendo. That's what you're supposed to love about them. Yeah, I love that and not Mario. <laughs> and it's kind of funny thing about Perfect Dark because a lot of people who loved Perfect Dark have a very special place in their hearts for it. At my Halloween party two years ago, <laughs> you and me and Lance busted it out, and it is freaking rough to play now. It's so hard. Like, who it is ugly. Who would have thought that having dual sticks is like? It is there's no way to, to play watch it you manipulate them. the sticks with your hands right now. <laughs> I'm really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and trying to use like the C pad to move, and it's just so like jerky to aim up and down and everything. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs> You'd be so good on video, Joey. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's rough to play now. It was awesome back in the day. Um, That's kind of my list for team-based shooters. What do we miss? Tweet your thoughts at Tom underscore underscore awesome or at HobbyBoxBurns on the Twitter machine or shoot us an email at overratedpod at gmail.com. Heck, I might even tweet then if you tweet at me. I doubt it, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so we had originally planned on talking about video games in this episode, but we have already gone way longer than we anticipated. So we're going to wrap up with a Final Fantasy update before we close the door for this week. <laughs> 
Final Fantasy update. We decided to do this Final <laughs> Fantasy challenge where we'd play a Final Fantasy every month through the entire year. Now, I have managed so far to play one through eight in the first eight months of the year to some degree or other. Like, I have not finished any of them. I haven't put the time in on as many of them as I'd like to. It turns out that, like, I still much prefer new games. I've, I've been playing a lot of Monster Hunter, uh, and that's cut into eight. But this is August, the eighth month of the year, so I've been playing Final Fantasy VIII. I know you haven't been playing it. You're waiting for the remaster. Which comes out September 3rd, so just a month too late. Have you played eight before? I played eight before, so and as, as we've talked about before, but I don't think it was on the podcast, uh, Final Fantasy VIII is the reason why I always have to create multiple saves. Because I got to, I think it was on the second disc, I got to a boss battle where it gives you the prompt right before you go into the battle after you see the cutscene if you want to save or not. So it's like, yeah, I'll save. I'll fill over the one save slot I have. And I was not strong enough to beat them. Jumps right into the battle. I probably played that boss battle against those two like 20 times. Could not beat it. I was just like, there's no way I can keep playing this game. And it was far enough in that it's, I just really didn't feel like wanting to restart it. So I am really excited to actually jump back in and play it because I did enjoy the characters, even though Squ- Squall's a little bit of an edge case. I <laughs> mean, come on, dude. Let's, you know. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, um. So here's an interesting thought. In today's day and age like there's basically unlimited save space like you can save Mm -hmm. as many versions as you want but when final fantasy 8 came out on the playstation 1 your memory card had 15 slots on it right and that isn't 15 slots for final fantasy 8 that is 15 (laughs) slots for literally every game you own if you have something like a madden franchise that would take up like eight of those 15 slots (laughs) right so that's kind of a bastard move to require (laughs) multiple save states that's must be a hard thing to look back on. <laughs> now, I had never played 8 before. It is the last mainline entry before 15 that I had not experienced. Okay. And I freaking love it. Yeah. Like, I remember watching a friend play it back in the day. I'm like, this looks dorky. Like, this is no Final Fantasy VII. This is <laughs> garbage. But it might be my favorite Final Fantasy. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I really like the Guardian Force system where you're uh, assigning different... Uh, basically summons to your character mm-hmm. and getting different strengths from them. And I just, I don't know exactly what grips me so much. Like, I look at it and I'm like, this looks like Resident Evil, but it plays yeah. like Final Fantasy. Yeah. And just, I can't define exactly what I like about it, but man, I just, I'm really, really enjoying Final Fantasy VIII. Well, and looking at it historically, because Final Fantasy VIII is one of those that has been, it's kind of the redheaded stepchild, especially of the PlayStation Final Fantasies, because you'll have a very split base that if they're looking at those three games, which is your favorite, and they'll be either seven or nine. Not a lot of people say eight. And those are the first two Final Fantasies that I've beaten. Seven, nine, and 13 are the ones. Oh, you did beat 13, even though you hate it, huh? Oh, God, I hated it so much. <laughs> but yes, I beat it. Like graphically, it was a big jump up even from what Final Fantasy VII did. Graphically, it felt like what they wanted to do with Final Fantasy yes. VII, and they were finally able to execute it in VIII. Um, and then when you look at the music of Final Fantasy VIII, like, it was like Nubuo Uematsu, like, unleashed. It's You want to have, like, operatic singing along with your music? Go for it. <laughs> you want to have these, like, huge themes bursting at all these different times? Like, go for it. And, and so I... 
when I go to sleep at night, I listen to video game music. Lame. <laughs> but You love video games. I get it. And that's one that constantly comes up is Final Fantasy VIII because it's just the – I can't remember exactly what it's called, but Liberi Fatali something is sort of the main kind of like operatic theme from the game. And that's just – it's it is – it took video game music into a direction – I think right around that same time where Halo got really sort of epic in scale with its music. And I think that was what was the precursor for a lot of those things. And Uematsu's music in general, like I could record a whole podcast. People would probably think is boring just going through like his music and how great it is and how much it continued to push Final Fantasy or Final Fantasy forward, as well as just game music in general to another level. But that game was kind of that first point where music actually started to sound like music and not just digital tunes going off. And I think that was just fascinating for that time. And I can't remember how good Final Fantasy IX looked. Like, I haven't played it since I beat it in 2002. So next month will be an interesting trip down memory road. I remember liking the card game in it. Um, And I remember something about a play within a play. And I remember that I liked it very much, but it'll be fun to go back. But I have an interesting conundrum with eight. Like, I know I'm not going to beat it. Yep. But I want to play more of it. Yeah. And I know the remake is coming out. But I also know that I'm not going to buy the remake and play it while I'm doing the Final Fantasy Challenge and trying to play nine... 10, 15, and <laughs> God, what was the last one? I know that I tweaked the order for the last couple of months because in deer hunting in November, I had to have something mobile. I couldn't play uh, whatever we were playing in November then. So I think I swapped. Maybe I put 10 in November. Okay. I don't know. Well, because 12 is out for Switch now too, so you could take that with. 12. Yeah, that was the one because I haven't purchased that one. I don't know. Lost my train of thought. <laughs> But we're playing 10, 12, and 15 through the rest of the year. And I just can't see myself playing the remake of 8 while I'm playing those. So it's like I'm waiting for the year to be over so I can really dive into the ones that I want to play and continue to push. And I want to I wanna play and beat them all, but playing them on a monthly constraint, constrict, constraint? Constraint. Constraint. Third time's a charm. Yeah. Playing on a monthly constraint just doesn't really work for me at this phase of life. Well, and even for somebody who has infinitely more, like, gaming time than you have it's still difficult to try to do that just because there's so many things coming out now and i don't know playing the same type of game over and over and over again it's hard to keep going with those things um i was actually a little surprised i'm backtracking just a tad but like final fantasy 7 actually to me stood up the test of time a lot better it still plays great i mean the, the visuals are, are a rough. little rough <laughs> yes but the game is still very fun. So what are you going to play Final Fantasy IX on? What am I going to play IX on? Are you playing it on the Vita? On the Vita, yeah. Okay. That's probably good. The remastered version that they put out on the PlayStation 4 is pretty good, but the backgrounds are really rough. And uh-huh. I can show you some screenshots of it at some point. But so So it might almost be better to play that. On the Vita, I would guess. Awesome. I already own it on the Vita, so I'm looking forward to it. There you go. And just a couple of thoughts on Final Fantasy VII. Still super duper fun. I didn't, I mean, I've got 10, 12, 15 hours into it. I didn't get very far. I don't think I got off the first disc, but really fun going through some of the iconic early stuff. How deep did you get into Final Fantasy VII? So I made it halfway through. I just about to uh, the very famous part of the game. I don't want to talk about it because 
The game's like 30 years old. The right? game's We're not worried about old, spoilers. But Final Fantasy VII Remake comes out oh, in sure. February. And granted, Still skeptical, for the record. I'll believe it when I actually hold something that plays it. I mean, everything from E3 that came out about it and people actually played it there, it looks... Did you see any of the gameplay from e It looks freaking amazing. Like, that seems like what they were trying to get to with 13 and 15, and they're finally doing it with a story that they've already told and can elaborate on. It. I don't want to get myself too hyped or too worked up, but it very definitely could be the best Final Fantasy game just because it's going to be that mixture of where they're trying to get it to be more of an action RPG, which 15 got close, and I loved 15. And I can't wait to play it. I have not played it yet. So 15 got close to that, but it was still like your attacks didn't seem like they quite meant... Like, it just kind of felt like you were hitting the button to hit the button, you know? And there was some strategy in there, but it seems like with what they're doing with the ATB charges... And selecting the different things and switching to the different people at the right times is what they wanted to do with 15, but as weird as it sounds, didn't have enough time to do, even though they developed it for 10 years. Video game <laughs> development is hard, man. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I could only imagine. Scott's really the only one of us that can talk about that. But yeah, well, but yeah I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm super enjoying going back through and playing all the games. One quick thing. What did you think of six? Because I don't think we had a chance to talk about six at all. No, we didn't. I only got a couple hours into it. I got to, I think, the first big branch in the story where you could choose which of the three paths Uh, you wanted to pursue first. Yes. And I thought that was an awesome innovation in storytelling. I thought six was really, really good, Mm -hmm. um, but I just didn't have a lot of time to play in June. So, you know, thinking about the order that I want to play them in when this challenge is over, (laughs) thinking that I am actually going to go back and beat all of these games. Mm Eight is at the top of the list. Okay. Then probably one because I think it's the shortest and I yep. got, you know, close-ish on that one. Mm-hmm. Then probably six and then we'll see from there. Yeah. Six is amazing. It's still, even though I haven't beaten it yet and I really wanted to, but that month was like insane for me. Six, I think, is still my favorite Final Fantasy game. But we'll see as I get through more of these. It It's kind of those it's so difficult it's like they're all my favorite children i like them all <laughs> yeah. you know four five and six offered a lot to love and i'm they did. sad that i missed that generation of gaming when it was fresh and new and relevant mm-hmm. and i think six stands the test of time a little bit better than four does but uh i don't know i'm really excited to play nine again and try to actually beat it because uh, on a digital version the final disc can't be scratched and can't keep you from finishing the game. So I'm super excited to play that and then replay 10 because 10 was actually the first. Oh, no, I've beat seven, but 10 was the second Final Fantasy I beat. So I'm looking forward to playing that the following month. Yeah, me too. And that is all that we have for you here tonight. Next month, I wasn't sure what we were going to be back with, but we have an entire half a show we didn't get to today. (laughs) We teased that we were going to talk about cooperative video games. Well, that's going to be coming at you in September. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend if you know someone who is interested in video games. You know, we'd love to grow our audience and attract more sponsors and buy big fancy sports cars and meet Victoria Silvestad, Playmate of the Year. (laughs) No, first you get the chicks, then you get the jobs, then you get the khakis. No, first you get the job, then you get the khakis, then you get the chicks. Oh. And that's our show. Follow us on social. Tom underscore underscore awesome on Twitter. Hobbybox Burns on Twitter. Facebook.com slash outside is overrated. Instagram outside underscore overrated pod. We'll be back next month to talk about video games. 
Stay inside, kids. Whose house? Tom's house. Whose house? Tom's house. Coughing house. God damn it, Joey. Ma- Maxwell house? The, the the best thing of waking up is Maxwell in your house? I'm trying to do a show here, dude. <laughs> now, you do what you have to do to bust me out of somber Tom mode, and we'll fucking grip it and rip it right here. All right, let's fiddle with some more shit on the board and see if we can figure things out. Yes, I'm all for. It's not the size of your lines, it's what you do with them, Tom. Phoenix always said my lines are a good size. <laughs> Maybe it's just the somber Tom effect, but we're going to spin this dial down a little bit more. She also said that your lines come out a little bit too quickly. She did not say that. <laughs> she would not go on record with that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was in like... You know, sort of like one of your other podcasts. I heard it in the subtext. Yes, because I do so many. I edit so many podcasts all the live long day. That's what you always say to me, but it's never as good as I think it's going to be. Somehow Phoenix always thinks it's better. I don't know. I guess I found my soulmates. (laughs) 